pressing racial justice issue of our time. The mass incarceration of poor people of color. Millions of impoverished people, particularly poor people of color, are being literally thrown away. KPFA and the International House of UC Berkeley will screen the throwaways, a phenomenal documentary film, twice at 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. on Thursday, January 29th at International House, Piedmont Avenue at Bancroft in Berkeley. The film's director and producer will be present with Davey D for a serious Q&A. This KPFA benefit has wheelchair access. Tickets are at brownpapertickets.com, independent bookstores, and on the 29th at iHouse. Find more information at kpfa.org. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for Cover the Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up. In darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. <laughs> Today is January the 20th, 2015, and the lights are out here in North Berkeley. Yes, we're in the dark. <laughs> well, some of us are. Uh, never mind all that. Last week, my mantra was make the world safe for satire. Seventeen souls gone, seventeen human beings dead because humorless madmen could not endure some uh, cartoons about the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, <laughs> I, I was reading my Jane Austen in the middle of the night to soothe my shattered nervous system, and I found... Uh, hilarious line uh what is it it's uh oh yes it's elizabeth bennett in pride and prejudice she has finally finally uh turned her great love darcy into uh well not the perfect man but into someone who is neither proud nor prejudiced and uh she looks at him they are in a late stage of courtship and uh, all things are well, but as she confirms all his virtues, but then she sighs and adds, He has not learned to be laughed at. <laughs> My mother always told me that that was the cardinal sin. She said, if you ever wish to uh, get rid of a gentleman, just uh, laugh at him. That's the thing that... 
they dread more than anything else. Anyway, the humorless, <laughs> the humorless dudes who, um, uh, what's the word, uh, um, murdered, yes, murdered, those, uh, Artists in Paris are giving me nightmares. Uh, then along comes the Pope, you know, good old Pope Francis thought he was mellow. And uh, <laughs> uh, he's uh, talking some of this nonsense about how well it's not nice to insult the sacred beliefs of those whose structured belief systems just can't take a joke. Now, uh, I, I understand that, that the Pope um, must must come out for um, uh, niceties, niceties, yes. He, he says it's not nice to draw profane pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what we tell the little children in kindergarten. We say, no, those are not nice. Don't take those home to mommy. Draw a prettier picture. Anyway, <laughs> that doesn't mean we shoot the artist uh, and the Pope certainly did not say that there should be a law against uh, drawing funny pictures and uh, what is that? Bad-mouthing people, I think. That's what it is. Yes. Uh, I was shocked. Pope Francis, well, I think he's doing the best he can in the circumstances in which he finds himself. In any case... Today, I just want to read you something, uh, something real satire, old-fashioned satire. I think some of us have forgotten what that's all about. Uh, I, I get so, so, what is that, tired of trying to define the terms. Uh, words just get us into more and more trouble. Anyway. This is a little a little essay that I want to read it because uh, I don't want to run out of time. And it, it's an insult, of course, to patriotic Brits, but nobody shot the writer uh, back in the day when it was uh, sharp, clever, witty to shame warmongers. You remember Mark Twain's war prayer? That was satire, I guess, satire. Uh, it's the one in which he begs. God to smite the enemy, and he does it in no uncertain terms, reminded me of Alfre Woodard in a uh, series, now it's called State of Affairs. She plays the president of these United States. She and Morgan Freeman have become the surrogate uh, presidents. Uh, yes, both genders, but she, Alfre Woodard, uh, is swearing to avenge the death of her son in Iraq, and uh, her daughter-in-law is in, uh, what is it, she says in the CIA, I guess, uh, and she too swears uh, that she will not rest until every one of the killers is uh, uh, dead. Avenged. They're standing in a cemetery with rows and rows of little white crosses and Alfre Woodard takes a deep breath and says that, well, we have to thank the terrorists because uh, they, after all, have made both of these women killers. Indeed, yes, those to whom evil is done do evil in return. Anyway, I don't want to 
run out of time to read this hilarious essay. It's one of my favorites, but it's not, uh, what do you call it? It's not haw-haw funny, although I think it is. Uh, it's written by Muriel Spark, a splendid British writer. <laughs> yes, born in 1918. She, uh, let's see, mother would be 16. She just barely old enough to be my grandmother. Anyway, she is famous, I guess. The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie is one of the books that most people know. Uh, anyway, uh, if I have time after I finish this essay, I will read you uh, some of the biography of Muriel Spark to tell you about her. She's born in Edinburgh uh, back in the day, and she hung out in South Africa for a while. And yes, <laughs> she did all kinds of weird things like convert to Roman Catholicism, ah, like, in, like uh, Sigrid Unset. Never mind. Uh, this essay by Muriel Spark is titled the first year of my life. I was born on the first day of the second month of the last year of the First World War, a Friday. Testimony abounds that during the first year of my life, I never smiled. I was known as the baby whom nothing and no one could make smile. Everyone who knew me then has told me so. They tried very hard, singing, bouncing me up and down, jumping around, pulling faces. Many times I was told this later by my family and their friends. <sighs> but anyway, I knew it all the time. Uh, you will shortly be hearing of that new school of psychology, maybe you have heard of it already, which, after long research and experiment, has established that all of the young of the human species are born omniscient. Babies in their waking hours know everything that is going on everywhere in the world. They can tune in to any conversation they choose, switch on to any scene. We have all experienced this power. It is only after the first year that it was brainwashed out of us, for it is demanded of us by our immediate environment that we grow to be of use to it. In a practical way, footnote here. It's a wonderful chapter in Mary Poppins about the little twins and how they uh, are omnipotent and know everything and talk to the animals. But I think they were at the age of two when suddenly uh, Mary Poppins notices that they have become <laughs> disabled, you know, they're starting to be people. Anyway, uh, Here's more of Muriel Spark. Gradually, our know-all brain cells are blacked out. Although traces remain in some individuals in the form of ESP, and uh, in the adults of some primitive tribes. <clears throat> this is not a new theory. Poets and philosophers, as usual, have been there first. But scientific proof is now ready to hand. 
Perhaps the final touches are being put to the new manifesto in some cell at Harvard University. Any day now, it will be given to the world and the world will be convinced. Let me therefore get my word in first because I feel pretty sure now about the authenticity of my remembrance of things past. My autobiography, as I very well perceived at the time, started in the very worst year that the world had ever seen so far. Apart from being born bedridden and toothless, unable to raise myself on the pillow or utter anything but farmyard squawks or uh, police siren wails... My bladder and my bowels totally out of control. I was further depressed by the curious behavior of these two-legged mammals around me. These were those black-dressed people, females of the species to which I appeared to belong, saying uh, (laughs) they had lost, lost their sons. I slept a great deal. Let them go, find their sons. It was like the special pin for my nappies, which my mother or some other hoverer dedicated to my care. was always losing. These careless women in black lost their husbands and their brothers. Then they came to visit my mother and clucked and crowed over my cradle. I was not amused. Oh, babies never really smile till they're three months old, said my mother. They're not supposed to smile till they're three months old. My brother, age six, marched up and down with the toy rifle over his shoulder. The grand old Duke of York, he had 10,000 men. He marched them up to the top of the hill and he marched them down again. And when they were up, they were up. And when they were down, they were down. And when they were neither down nor up, they were neither up. Or down. Oh, just listen to him. Oh, look at him with his rifle. I was about ten days old when Russia stopped fighting. I tuned into the Tsar, a prisoner with the rest of his family, since evidently the country had uh, put him off his throne and there had been a revolution uh, not long before I was born. Everyone was talking about it. I tuned into the Tsar. Nothing would ever induce me to sign the Treaty of Brest-Levox, he said to his wife. Nobody had asked him to. At this point, I was sleeping 20 hours a day to get my strength up. From what I discerned in the other four hours of the day, I knew I was going to need it. The western front on my frequency was sheer blood, mud, dismembered bodies, blistering crashes, hectic flashes of light in the night skies, explosions, total terror. Since it was plain I had been born into a bad moment in the history of the world, the future bothered me, unable as I was to raise my head from the pillow. And as yet, only twenty inches long, I truly wish I were a fox or a bird. D.H. Lawrence was writing that to somebody. Dreary old 
creeping Jesus. I fell asleep. Red sheets of flame shot across the sky. It was 21 March, the 50th day of my life. The German spring offensive had started before by morning feed. Infinite slaughter. I scowled at the scene, made an effort to kick out, but the attempt was feeble. Furious and impatient for some strength, I wailed for my feed. After which, I stopped wailing, but continued to scowl the grand old Duke of York. He had ten thousand men. They rocked the cradle. I never heard a sillier song over in Berlin and Vienna. The people were starving, freezing, striking, rioting and yelling in the streets in London. Everyone was bustling to work and muttering that it was time. The whole damn business was over. The big people around me bared their teeth. <laughs> that meant smile. I guess meant they were pleased or amused, they spoke of uh, ration cards for meat and sugar and butter. Oh, oh, where will it all end? I went to sleep. I woke, tuned in to Bernard Shaw, who was telling someone to shut up. I switched over to Joseph Conrad, who, strangely enough, was saying precisely the same thing. I still... Didn't think it worth a smile, although it was expected of me any day now. I got on to Turkey. Women draped in black, huddled and shattered in their harems. Yak, yak, yak. This was boring. Ah, so I came back to home base. In and out came and went the women in British black. My mother's brother, dressed in his uniform, came coughing. He had been poison-gassed in the trenches. <laughs> he was now commander-in-chief uh, of the Allied forces. My uncle coughed from deep within his lungs, never to recover, but destined to return to the front. His brass buttons gleamed in the firelight. I weighed twelve pounds by now. I stretched kicked for exercise, seeing that I had a lifetime before me. Coping with this crowd, I took six feeds a day and kept most of them down. <laughs> By the time the Vindictive was sunk in Ostend Harbor, <laughs> I was uh, kicking with a special vigor in my bath. In France... The conscripted soldiers leapfrogged over the dead on the advance. They littered the fields with limbs and hands or drowned in the mud. The strongest men on all fronts were dead. Before I was born, now the sentries used bodies for barricades. The fighting men were <laughs> unhealthy from the start. I checked my toes, my fingers, knowing I was going to need them. The playboy of the Western world was playing at the Court Theatre in London. Occasionally, I beamed over to the House of Commons, which made me drop off gently to sleep. 
generally I preferred the Western Front, uh, where one got to the true state of affairs. It was essential to know the worst. Blood, explosions and all. One had to be prepared, as the Boy Scout said. Virginia Woolf yawned, reached for her diary. Really, I preferred the Western Front. On the fifth month of my life, I could raise my head from my pillow and hold it up. I could grasp the objects that were held out to me. Some of these things rattled and squawked. I gnawed on them to get my teeth started. She hasn't smiled yet, said the dreary old aunties. My mother, on the defensive, said I was probably one of those late smilers. On my way to the length, Pablo Picasso was getting married. And early in that month of July, the silver wedding of King George V and Queen Mary was celebrated in joyous pomp at St. Paul's Cathedral. They drove through the streets of London with their children. Twenty-five years of domestic happiness. A lot of fuss and ceremonial handing over of swords. Yes. Ah, uh-huh. the Guild Hall, the King and Queen received a check for 53,000 pounds to dispose of for charity as they thought fit. Income tax in England had reached six shillings in the pound. Everyone was talking about the silver wedding, yak, 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 and ten days later, the Tsar and his family, now in Siberia, were invited to descend to a little room in the basement. Crack, 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 went the guns, screams, and blood all over the place. And that was the end of the Romanovs. I flexed my muscles, a fine, healthy baby, said the doctor. <laughs> Gave me much satisfaction. I was able to crawl in my playpen. Bertrand Russell was still cheerily in prison for writing something seditious about pacifism. <laughs> Tuning in as usual to the front lines, it looked as if the Germans were winning all the battles, yet losing the war. Ah... Uh, and so uh, it was <laughs> the upper-income people, yes. They were upset about the income tax at the six shillings to the pound. But but all women over 30 got the vote. Seems a long time to wait, said one of my drab old aunts, age 22. The speeches in the House of Commons always sent me to sleep which was why I missed, at the actual time, a certain oration by Mr. Asquith following the armistice on 11 November. Ah, Mr. Asquith was a greatly esteemed former prime minister, later to be an earl. He'd been ousted by Mr. Lloyd George. I clearly heard Asquith in private refer to Lloyd George as... Quote, that damned Welsh goat. The armistice was signed. I was awake for that. I pulled myself onto my feet with the aid of the bars of my cot. My teeth were coming through very nicely. 
I put all my energy into bringing them forth. I weighed 20 pounds on all the world's fighting fronts. The men killed in action or dead of wounds numbered 8,538,315. Warriors wounded and maimed were 21,219,452. With these figures in my mind, I sat up in my high chair and banged my spoon on the table. One of my mother's black draped friends recited, I have a rendezvous with death at some disputed barricade. When spring comes back with rustling shade and apple blossoms fill the air, I have a rendezvous with death. Most of the poets, they said, had been killed. Ah, the poetry made them dab their eyes with clean white handkerchiefs. Next February, on my first birthday, there was a birthday cake with one candle, lots of children and their elders. The war had been over for two months and 21 days. Why doesn't she smile? My brother was to blow out the candle. The elders were talking about the war and the political situation and Lloyd George and Asquith and Asquith and Lloyd George. And I remembered recently having switched on to Mr. Asquith at a private party where he had been drinking a lot. (laughs) I had seen him putting his arm around a lady's shoulder in a motor car and generally behaving towards her in a very friendly fashion. (laughs) Ah, the guests arrived for my birthday. It was so sad, said one of the black widows. So sad about Wilfred Owen, who was killed so late in the war. She quoted from a poem of his. What passing bells for these who die as cattle? Only the monstrous anger of the guns. Children squealing and toddling around. One was sick. Another wet the floor and stood with his legs apart, gaping at the puddle. All was mopped up. I banged my spoon on the table of my high chair. But I've a rendezvous with death at midnight in some flaming town when spring trips north again this year. And I, to my pledged word, am true. I shall not fail that rendezvous. More parents... More children arrived. One stout man who was warming his behind at the fire said, I always think those words of Asquith after the armistice were so apt. They brought the cake then, and uh, the candle was shining and flickering. A pity she never smiles. She'll smile in time, my mother said. 
What Asquith told the House of Commons just after the war, said the stout gentleman with his backside to the fire so apt. He said that the war has cleansed and purged the world. By God, I recall his actual words. All things have become new in this great cleansing and purging. It has been the privilege of our country to play her part. That did it. I broke into a decided smile. Oh, my baby's smiling, said my mother. It was the cake, they said. Cake be damned. Since that time, I have grown to smile quite naturally like any other house-trained person. Ah, when I really mean a smile deeply felt from the core, it is always in response to those words uttered in the House of Commons after the First World War by the distinguished, the immaculately dressed, late Mr. Asquith. This has been Jennifer Stone with Mind Over Media, with uh, Stone Straw. I'll be back on the air next week at the same time. Till then, go easy. If you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. You care about your body, how that body will hold up in coming years? Well, the startling future of medicine is already here. Low-cost smartphone attachments can measure your blood pressure and blood glucose. Can do almost any lab test with merely one drop of your blood. That's just for starters. Eric Topol, practicing cardiologist, director at Scripps Institute, author of The Patient Will See You Now will soon be here explaining the emerging technology that lets you take charge of your own medical care. Topol will speak at the Hillside Club, 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley, Tuesday evening, February 10th, 730. There's wheelchair access at this KPFA benefit. Brian Edwards Steaker will host tickets at brownpapertickets.com and supportive bookstores. More information on the KPFA website for Eric Topol, February 10th. KPFA.